Oh, we're just a bunch of idiots. So, Except Charlie. Charlie's face. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you with the beard. Yeah. Iceberg. <laughs> his so, beard was chestnut. <laughs> it went down to his sternum. <laughs> Welcome to episode 23 of the Presequential Podcast, where we go from 1 to 45 and under 90 and discuss the life, legacy, and little-known facts about every American president. Season 2 is sponsored by our friends at Greek's Pizzeria. Place your order today at greekspizzeria.com. Blaine, give them the slogan. It's our taste. <laughs> I'm your host, Ryan Allwert, joined by Blaine Zimmerman and our producer and vice presidential expert, Russ Slivka. We are also honored to have our first ever guest on the podcast today, Charlie Hyde, the president and CEO of the Benjamin Harrison presidential site in the heart of Indianapolis, where we are actually recording tonight's episode. We're looking through the window at the president's home, which is really unique. We've never done this before. Normally, we're in Blaine's kitchen. There are two dogs with us. Not tonight, but we're so excited. Charlie, welcome. Thank you for your hospitality and the knowledge that you're about to drop on us and our listeners tonight. Blaine, what are we calling episode 23? So first off, we read the book Benjamin Harrison by Charles W. Calhoun. It was written in 2005, and it was 166 pages. So one of our lighter books to yeah. date what's our running tally at this felt point? like a breeze compared yeah, to grant oh, gosh yeah. turn out. we get it ron churn <laughs> uh, our page tally now 23 presidents in is 10,026 so indiana's own uh helped us break into the five yeah. digits yeah. so this episode is titled the iceberg with an assist from charlie on the title name so we met well a few months ago right and we were trying to, I had a couple ideas floating around in my head. The iceberg was one because he was to some known as like icy demeanor. And I'd love for you to explain why you thought it was a, a good title too, because there's some layers well, to it. It doesn't sound like a very complimentary name for anyone. No one wants to be known <laughs> as the iceberg unless maybe, I don't know, maybe if you're playing football or something. Right. But for Benjamin Harrison, it seemed apt in that you only see a percentage of it above the surface. I think the old the old quip is that only 10% of an iceberg of an iceberg is above the surface. And I think that that's what you find when you look at Benjamin Harrison's legacy as an American president, is that a lot of that legacy just has gone unseen. So it'll be fun to be able to share a little bit more about that story and what more should be seen about Benjamin Harrison and his legacy as 25th president of the United States. Awesome. And you also had a hand in uh, which drink we're drinking this week. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, do you want to take the drink this week? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, this is a... put uh, it in arm's reach. Uh-huh, I'm sorry. Thank you. No, it's okay. This is a Dewar's White Label, a true scotch uh, from John Dewar and Sons out of Perthshire, Scotland. It's, do you, have, you have a Scottish accent in there, don't you? I, oh, absolutely. Could what, I do it? Go ahead. Welcome to the Benjamin Harrison episode. <laughs> drinking some Dewar's here with Charlie Hyde from the presidential side. Let's take a sip. Okay. Well, first of all, cheers. 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 Cheers to you all. Charlie, thank you for being here. There we go. All right. Cheers. Salute. Oh, that goes down smooth. Mm-hmm. That's dangerous. Whew. Uh, Charlie, before we start, would you like to tell us a little bit about, and our listeners a little bit about, what, what why we pick doers? Yeah, why we pick doers, and also some of the really unique things that are happening here at the presidential site. Sure. So it's it's interesting because... You know, representing an American president, you pay attention when news items or tidbits come across the web um, on a president. And I have to say, one of the things that consistently surprises me is you get these presidential drink lists and inevitably they say Benjamin Harrison enjoyed water or lemonade and assumes that for some reason he just didn't care for anything harder than that. And it's interesting because there's 
you know, a lot of controversy in the late 19th, early 20th century about you know, drinking. Mm-hmm. And presidents were especially mindful of public perceptions of drinking, um, with the temperance movement being in full swing. Um, and this all, this all ties together with Benjamin Harrison, because um, while he was very moderate in his drinking, he did like having American-made wines. He helped promote those as president in the White House, and you know, a larger effort to promote American-made things. But as president, Andrew Carnegie, Carnegie, depending on who you ask, actually sent Harrison a big cask of what was described as the best scotch to be had. Mm. So as it turns out, it was Dewar's, and it came to um, national attention because of controversy around temperance. So Harrison was criticized both for accepting the alcohol because it was alcohol and that if he was going to accept alcohol, then it should be American-made alcohol, not hmm. foreign alcohol. <laughs> so, so here, you know, you can't win. Yeah, and, and when it comes to politics, to, you just can't win. Yeah, and if you go to Dewar's website, there's a copy of the letter that Andrew Carnegie wrote to the Dewar's factory, the Dewar's president, I would assume, yeah. saying, please send a barrel, nine to ten gallons, if you will, wow. uh, to the president's house and then has, you know, executive mansion, Washington, D.C., <laughs> attention, <laughs> honorable President Benjamin Harrison. And then they sent him, I think, 18 gallons is what they actually sent him. Wow. Wow. So it was it was quite a lot. Yeah. And I think in the thank you note, Harrison uh, said something to, to the point of he would use it medicinally. Yeah. So I, mean, I think <laughs> that, that was a, kind of the joke at the time is, you know, you use it medicinally. Right. Yeah. So that's hmm. fun. Uh, by the way, if you are loving the podcast and want to get episodes early and ad free, you can join our Patreon community for only $5 a month at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash presequential. And for five bucks more a month, you can also get our exclusive bonus episodes on other influential Americans sent to you. Sign up today at Patreon dot com slash presequential. All right, guys, what do we remember? And Charlie, please jump in on this. What do you remember <laughs> about Benjamin Harrison from high school government class, social studies growing up? And this is a unique question because I think most of us grew up around the time where he started to enter into that conversation in high school in Indiana. I mean, I don't remember much. I remember he was from Indiana. That's probably all I remember. I know that we probably learned more about it, but like who pays attention in eighth grade social studies? (laughs) Uh, I remember. I don't even know if this is right. Um, Electricity in the White House? Was he the oh, first to have electricity? That was from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe that's where I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. The- <laughs> I remember Fort Benjamin Harrison. My, the whole Your reason why we, moved, there. we yeah. moved to Indiana. My dad was one of the senior Navy guys in landlocked Indianapolis at Fort Ben, as we call it here. But that was really it. Charlie, what about you? You know, I think like many Hoosiers, just other than the Harrison name being prevalent around town for location of this and that, there just wasn't a lot to say about Benjamin Harrison, good or bad. It just anything other than the, maybe the grade school field trip. Yeah, yeah, um, right. Which you know. my son just did last Monday. He came to and toured the house last Monday with his uh, fourth grade class. Was, so wasn't it ranked recently one of, by TripAdvisor like one of the top hundred things to do in the country or something? Um, so we do keep tabs on TripAdvisor and want to always make sure that we're improving. <laughs> So we've actually been steadily climbing up in those TripAdvisor rankings over the past five, six years. Went from the top five um, past two years uh, to we were just ranked as number one for things to do in Indianapolis by user rankings. Oh, man, that's great. I'll drink to that. Congrats. So that's that's all user-driven. So that's nothing we can control. And you're currently improving the site, as we can see 
threw the construction out the window. What what improvements are coming along outside here? Well, what we can control is, you know, certainly our upkeep and maintenance of the historic property, um, the experience once people are actually here on grounds. So we're very fortunate. We have a tremendous staff, tremendous volunteers, tremendous board of directors. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, so we're in the midst of a $6 million capital campaign and working to, to heighten the visibility of the museum itself. It was important for us, you know, as hard as we work to professionalize the inside of the museum and recognizing it, it's a really unique educational opportunity, but to make that investment and to really think of this in the long term, um, preserving and promoting that National Historic Landmark and doing everything we can, again, to deepen that educational experience for everyone who comes and visits us on site. I love it. Congrats yeah. on number one, man. That's, yeah. that's yeah, fantastic. that's awesome. That's it's, great. It's, I'm I'm happy as long as we're in the top five. Yeah, um, it's it's an honor to to get that kind of ranking, and again, it's a credit to our staff and volunteers. I love it. Well, feel free. We we've given you permission. If any uh, of these facts, none of us are the expert. You are the expert here. Russ is an expert. Well, that's yes, right. Russ, is, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. Don't bother me. <laughs> Self-proclaimed. <laughs> but uh, be fact boy on this. Okay, oh, yeah. so hop in if anything is incorrect. We we literally read one book in this journey, and you've probably read one. eighteen of them on Benjamin. You, shoot, you could probably write one on them. But uh, I'm going to drive the timeline here. Feel free to hop in anytime you want. Didn't you write the foreword for? So there was a reprint of a Harrison biography um, done by the Lou Wallace Historic Site. Mm. So oh, yeah. Lou Wallace actually wrote the uh, campaign biography for Benjamin Harrison. And there are two quick little like fun stories related to that. Um, one, Harrison agreed to let Lou Wallace write the book um, as long as he didn't have any like prior review of it. So it was written, and then it just went to print. Harrison never got to see it before it went to print. Wow. So I think that's a credit to Harrison that he had trust yeah. both in Lou Wallace, but then also that the facts will out, you yeah. know, that it is what it is. And he understood that that would be the case. But um, yeah, I think Ben Harrison didn't really need the author of Ben Hur to write that story because right. there is so much incredible content to draw from yeah. with that personal story that Harrison had as, you know, as a lawyer, as a veteran um, and just the tremendous civic legacy his family had had. Yeah. Is uh, it true Ben Hur is about Benjamin Harrison? <laughs> ben Hurst. I, I, think, yeah, I think that is untrue. Oh, yeah. okay. All right. Okay. Uh-huh. Agree I, to disagree. Yeah, guys, I saw it on Facebook. So we we actually did do a bonus episode on Lou Wallace that was intriguing to us, and hopefully, if if you were a, a tier two patron, you enjoyed it as well. Let's dive in. Here we go. Let's do this. Episode 23, The Iceberg. Born on August 20th, 1833, Benjamin Harrison had a relatively comfortable rural upbringing in North Bend, Ohio. As a child, he spent a lot of time outdoors and studied at home with private tutors. He was the great-grandson of Benjamin Harrison V, a founding father and signer of the Declaration of Independence, and the grandson of ninth president William Henry Harrison. Benjamin was seven years old when his grandfather was elected president. His father, John Scott Harrison, was a moderately prosperous farmer, and his mother, Elizabeth Irwin Harrison, was a strict Presbyterian, and uh, she gave loving but not really affectionate attention to her children. Young Benjamin attended Farmers College, a prep school in Cincinnati, for two years before going on to Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Ben graduated near the top of his class in 1852, and then he married his college sweetheart, Caroline Lavinia Scott, in 1853. Also college educated, so... Who's Somewhat rare for, for first ladies at the time. Know, yeah. Whose father's name was also John Scott. Okay. Yeah. True. So both their parent, both their dad's names were John Scott. There's a little known fact That's already. Odd. Wow. Yeah. 
He was 20 and she was 21 years old. He went on to study law in Cincinnati and passed the Ohio Bar in 1854. The Harrisons then moved to Indianapolis, where he practiced law from 1854 to 1860. Once again, shocking. President, lawyer. <laughs> right. don't, we don't see that enough. It says here that you practiced law. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Did not see that coming. Charlie, what was going on in 1854 through 1860 for somewhat young Benjamin Harrison, a rising star? Well, you know, it's interesting for for Benjamin Harrison because he was looking to build up a career, and it wasn't an easy thing to do. So he said at one point that the only thing he ever inherited was his name. So, hmm. you know, clearly, you know, when you're in casual company and you drop that your grand, great-grandfather was the signer of the Declaration of Independence, and no oh, heck, by the way, you know, your grandfather was ninth president of the United States. Yes, the one that died a month into his term. Um, I'm sure that that gets people's attention. Yeah. But for Benjamin Harrison, he really wanted to make his own way forward on his own merits. So he didn't inherit any wealth from his family, although that family was prominent. They'd immigrated from the UK in the early 1600s. So it was part of the reason that I think Benjamin Harrison came to Indianapolis Hmm. is he wanted to really make his own mark. And he considered staying in Cincinnati. He considered going to Chicago, um, where actually another famous Harrison would later end up, and maybe we'll get back around to that later. Um, but for Benjamin Harrison, he saw Indianapolis as being that like sweet spot mm. where there was potential and where um, he and his new wife, Carrie, could really raise a family together. So he just saw that that potential and to be able to really build his law career uh, right here in Indianapolis. It's a relatively young state at that time, too, right? Indiana was 1816. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in 1821, depending on who you ask, 1820, 1821, Indianapolis, you know, chosen as the capital. And mm-hmm. so, you know, essentially moving here 30 years in. Mm. From Corridan, uh, right? Corridan was the original capital? That was the first one, I think. Yeah. So it, it bounced Vincent's oh. Corridan. Isn't that right? Yeah. I knew Corridan was because Madison or Monroe came through yeah the air of good feelings on that tour thing Mm -hmm. that he did yeah anyway that's interesting yeah indy is is very young at this point for benjamin harrison to call it home and home base for himself and his family and his legal career during this early part of his legal career Harrison joined the New Republican Party and campaigned in 1856 for its first presidential nominee, John C. Fremont. Harrison's political involvement sped forward from there. I did want to point out his law partner in my notes was named William Wallace. Is that correct? <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. I just, now, now I'm like second not, guessing. Not like, yeah, well, I know. Yeah, it's not uh, just <laughs> He's a very you. old man. But now like <laughs> with you sitting here, like I'm just con- convinced every note I wrote it down wrong. And I'm just, <laughs> Don't second guess yourself. <laughs> no, that, but I. Well, and I mean, it's interesting because you look at those po- law partnerships and I can't even keep them all straight because, you know, lawyers, you know, they form partnerships. They kind of grow those partnerships. They might break apart. They might move so on. So, yeah. Yeah, I just I typically write down when I find weird stuff like that. Those yeah. are the notes. My notes are all over the place. But I'm not William asking Wallace you, was one I was definitely going to write down. I'm not asking you to say yes or no, but I wonder if William Wallace was related to Lou Wallace at all. Brother. Oh, oh, well, there, oh you go. there you go. <laughs> Charlie, this is why you're here. <laughs> He's like, yeah, you guys didn't have that in your notes. In 1857, Harrison entered politics himself and won election as Indianapolis's city attorney. He continued on this upward trajectory by serving as secretary of the Republican State Central Committee and campaigning for the 1860 presidential candidate Abraham Lincoln, who also spent some time in Indiana, of course. Uh, go listen to episode 16, The Rail Splitter. We had a lot of good feedback from listeners about that one. So yeah. determined to forward his career, Harrison served as the state reporter 
order for the Supreme Court of Indiana summarizing and supervising the publication of the court's official opinions. So what's a reporter? Is it the same thing as like a recorder now where they do the transcript? Is that? That's a stenographer, is oh, it not? Oh, okay. Yeah, so my understanding is basically compiling those reports. Oh, okay. And so making it so that for other lawyers, they could refer back to cases. Got it. And have all of the factual information. So just a so super sexy So somebody that basically job. was really good at <laughs> consolidating all this information and getting it to publication. Yeah, what well, every young child grows to aspire to be. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you got to think he had to be, he had to know how boring that job sounds. <laughs> well, there was no but, TV, so. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, but attention to detail. I mean, if I'm looking at what's in his character to, you know, that he would desire that kind of role, I would think he is okay with not a lot of glitz and glamour. He realizes this is pretty mundane, but it's important. Somewhat of a historian, a, a documenter, uh, if you will. You know, I, th- I think a lot of it speaks to Harrison's thoroughness. So he was, he was known as a lawyer and actually made his reputation in part because of his thoroughness. Um, there was a case that was tried, and I think he had maybe one day to, rep- to prepare, and it was on a poisoning. And Harrison did such tremendous research from the time that he maybe got the case to the following day when it was actually tried wow. that um, just blew away the judge and the jury on his knowledge of, of all the medical components related to the case just because of the thoroughness of the research that he had done. So I think it, it speaks to, you know, having a tolerance yeah. for that kind of yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. minutia that's required of anything dealing with the law, um, but also speaks to Harrison's character that, that he was extremely thorough and knowledgeable. Wow. So tremendous capacity for for information. In 1862, Harrison joined the 70th Indiana Infantry Regiment at the rank of second lieutenant. And there's a story behind this, right, with uh, Governor uh, Morton. Morton at the time. He was Charlie, a salty. Feel free to share, please. Well, so the, the story as it goes is that um, Harrison you know, clearly had been coming to greater attention um, locally um, and I'm sure regionally, you know, statewide. And so Harrison found himself in Morton's office one day, Governor Morton's office, um, I think with maybe his law partner, Wallace. And um, Morton called him aside and said, um, you know, we've been trying to answer Lincoln's call for more troops. I think he called for maybe 300,000 more troops nationally. And we're having a lot of trouble meeting Indiana's quota. And he said, uh, would you help recruit those additional troops? And Harrison gave it some thought, um, you know, there with the governor. And after a couple of minutes, he said, um, if I'm needed, I will go. And Morton's like, no, 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 no. I, I'm just trying to recruit more troops. I don't need you to go. I, I yeah, need you, you to need recruit to more troops. Stay put here. And, and Harrison said, um, I'm not going to ask anyone else. Essentially, I'm not going to ask anyone else to serve unless I, I serve myself. myself. Mm. Yeah. And so he committed that day then that he himself was going to serve. So he started off as second lieutenant, raised the full regiment, so 1,000 men, um, and by the end of the war had been breveted as brigadier general. He was a colonel within a month. So which, which, that happens yeah, normally, yeah, right? Something that happens all the well, time. Yeah. So, I mean, especially when on the citizen soldier side. Yeah. And I think Harrison wanted to establish the credibility that he was working his way through rank. Mm-hmm. Because what you what you had in that time period, as I understand it, is that you had political appointments where people would hold out for rank. That they they, they wouldn't let themselves go into the service unless they oh. had a certain rank. Yeah. Oh. And Harrison was willing to essentially earn his stripes in, in that process. Yeah. And wanted to make sure as he was recruiting that regiment together, he also then was preparing himself. So he went through an exhaustive um, 
course of study trying to understand military tactics because mm. you know he's operating at a disadvantage with him having focused on law mm-hmm. even though he had famous grandfather sure. you know military veteran um, but for Harrison it was, it was as much about diligence as anything else and having that credibility and now, like now if you hold out for a month for colonel you definitely you've earned it yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> uh, but his his study and tactics paid off at Osaka uh, as he led a frontal attack victory, which was one of the reason he was promoted to brigade commander. I know that it was um, Battle of Rosaka and I think Peachtree Creek. Um, those two battles both contributed. And it was interesting because, I mean, with, without jumping out of kind of your timeline here, it's interesting when you look at Harrison and you look at, you know, political figures and where they were able to leverage their service or not. And, you know, would later come to bear in that contest between Harrison and Cleveland because Cleveland had hired a substitute. Mm-hmm. So Harrison had yeah. options. He didn't have to go and serve. In fact, mm-hmm. he was an elected official in Indiana at the time. So we would have even had some like um, like a waiver. Yeah, yeah. essentially he, he would have been able to reta- or retain his good reputation by saying, oh, you know, I'm an elected official. I yeah. can't go off and do this. But Harrison saw it as a matter of personal pride and dignity and, you know, certainly had been um, speaking vocally against slavery since the 1850s and was outspoken in his um, advocacy for the abolition, abolition of slavery. Hmm. So it's, it's really interesting to look at that, that Harrison legacy, you know, with Benjamin Harrison and his kind of call to service and where he found himself later, the Battle of Rosaka, and um, what he saw was most vital as a military leader. Well, that's one of the things when I mentor younger military leaders now is like the number one thing I tell people is don't ever ask one of your soldiers to do something you're not willing to do yourself. So that, he I mean, he went straight at that point and said, well, I'm not going to go recruit people if I'm not going to go fight myself. Mm. Well, and it's interesting because the Lou Wallace biography of Benjamin Harrison is a bit of a slog to read. Um, there are p- parts of it that are fantastic, and then he gets into like 30 or 40 pages where it's talking about law cases where mm. Lou Wallace is a lawyer too. Riveting. Like, yeah. I'm sure for other lawyers, it was, yeah, it was riveting. Just no chariot races or anything no in there. No chariot races, but <laughs> Jesus wasn't it. Jesus yeah. wasn't well, it. Dang so, it. His so, beard was chestnut, <laughs> it went down to his sternum. <laughs> Thanks, so, Lou. <laughs> so, so in all of this, Lou Wallace does draw for some some of those stories directly from Harrison's own troops, and I think that that's what's oh, all yeah. the more compelling. Neat. Because what what you get a picture of is that Harrison started off not being very well liked as a leader, because he was seen as too much of a disciplinarian, and I think that as his troops saw him working their way further further south into combat situations, they realized that his insistence upon discipline was paying dividends for them as a well-prepared military fighting unit versus other units that were much more loosely defined or trained. And so once they actually faced battle, they realized all that training was coming to bear. And his grandfather was a strict disciplinarian as a military leader as well. Because remember, his grandfather's the one that would wake people up at 3 in the morning and dump them in the river. Oh, that's (laughs) right. I think a different type of disciplinarian on the Harrison side and um, maybe not the Martinet side. (laughs) But but Lou Wallace recounts stories of Harrison, like, you know, on cold nights, walking the picket lines and taking coffee to to the troops. Um, making sure that they were staying warm. And yeah. um, there are great stories, again, with Harrison. Um, you know, during, I think it was after one of the battle, the surgeons were separated from the main body of the, the 
um, of the forces. And so Harrison had to step in as military surgeon, essentially, to make sure that um, his soldiers were getting treated wow. until the surgeons could catch up. Wow. So you can imagine just how... Lawyer, surgeon, president. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's really remarkable. And I mean, it's, it's one of those things that we hope from any of our leaders, whether they ever amount to a president or not. Yeah. Um, we hope that they can lead with integrity. We hope that they are genuine people that have real life experience that they can draw from. And I think that from Harrison's perspective, again, you know, nine tenths is underwater. Yeah. And a lot of these stories, mm. you know, is, is interesting. Mm. And I mentioned to you earlier about seeing stories pop up online. There was one that was really frustrating that talked about, um, I think there's the cyclorama um, for the Atlanta campaign. Mm. So oh, yeah. Big, big yeah. I've seen that. It's sure. at Gettysburg. And, and so there's, there's a story about it being restored and how when it was making travels through the country that some entrepreneuring like um, underling of Harrison's like for his campaign decided it'd be fun to paint Harrison into the cyclorama, mm. which Harrison, you know, by all accounts had nothing to do with. Um, but the story at the time suggested that, um, you know, yet another president um, with like, what is it? Like borrowed glory. Mm. So Harrison was part of the Atlanta campaign. He was not actually in Atlanta. Yeah, the seventieth. Yeah, the seventieth march was Sherman for a long time. He I was believe I first... had a like ancient relative that marched with him as well. Oh, that's cool. During that campaign, he was like one of the first guys to really move into the city with Sherman, right? So not in Atlanta though. So oh, okay. He wasn't actually in Atlanta. I don't recall the exact circumstances. So he was up to Atlanta, but not actually in Atlanta. So okay. it's true that Harrison wasn't actually in that specific battle. But you look at all these other places and the fact that Harrison was known for leading his troops from the front. And um, again, it wasn't borrowed valor, at least on Harrison's part. So maybe not historically accurate for him. <laughs> and as a contemporary, we paid it a... Sorry. What is a cyclorama? Oh, you've never, I was going to ask if anyone. No, because I'm one. picturing like a, a metal ball with motorcycles, you know, <laughs> driving around. Well, wait, didn't, didn't his grandfather have like a campaign like ball that they would like they, roll they through did, the street? But yeah. it was not that. That's not the cyclorama. A cyclorama is, so I've, I've been to one in Gettysburg. I don't think it's the Atlanta one. I think it is about Gettysburg. And I've also read about the cyclorama from Atlanta when it was doing its tour for a little while. It was on the circle here. Um, in the late 1800s. I love what? that every time you say cyclorama, <laughs> Russ just I get super leans excited in more. It's, it's a 360-degree painting. Oh, okay. So oh, like the Benton murals. Uh, never mind. That's okay. very specific to Indiana. Um, but so yes. it's literally like you stand in the middle, and the building around you is all painted in a battle scene. Oh. So does that... Yeah, I mean, it's not as cool as motorcycles, but it's pretty cool. Is that what you thought it was? Yeah, like a, you know, know, those metal balls where people ride motorcycles of death, whatever it is. It's fine. I don't know if motorcycles of death were invented around Benjamin Harrison's time, but. That's why I was surprised. (laughs) You're such a kid at heart with your questions, and I love it. Please keep them coming. Sure. I'll be upset with you if you don't. (laughs) Anything else about the Civil War that we want to share with our listeners? I mean, I think we covered quite yeah. a bit. We've well, still got quite a bit to cover. Well, and I'll just mention one last thing. So for our visitors here at the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site, one of the really cool artifacts that they get to see is the actual commission that's signed by Lincoln, yeah. um, commissioning oh, and brevetting him as a brigadier general. Yeah. So you, that's right in the library, in the house. And and you also have that signed uh, portrait of Sherman. Yes. Yeah. That is one of my favorite pieces in that. Well, and it, it shows up both in the White House where Harrison had it, and then he brought it back to Indianapolis. Oh, wow. 
He's also, so. side note, got uh, Benjamin Harrison's uh, weightlifting set. In his that's bedroom. right. That's, oh, that's yes. Right. I would say my two favorite things I were forgot about the signed picture of or signed portrait of Sherman and the weightlifting set. Well, yeah, the, the, the house, the museum is ten thousand square feet, and we have over ten thousand artifacts. So I mean, we have a lot that we can draw from. Oh yeah, on that. Yeah, that I love it. Story. After the Civil War, Harrison resumed his law practice and work as a court reporter. He ran unsuccessfully for the Republican gubernatorial nomination. Isn't that just a fun it's word? It's a fun word. In 1872. Four years later, he won the Republican nomination only to lose the governor's race in a very close election. Impressed by Harrison's enthusiastic campaign support for him in the presidential election of 1876, President Rutherford B. Hayes appointed Harrison to the Mississippi River Commission in 1879. The next year, Harrison was deeply involved in national politics and chairing the Indiana delegation to the Republican National Convention. When Hayes fulfilled his pledge to serve only one term by withdrawing from this race for the presidency, Harrison threw his support behind the dark horse, James A. Garfield. So in this time would have been when he bought the house, correct? For $21,000? So... They actually had purchased the land shortly after he returned from the Civil War. Okay. Um, so mid, late 1860s. Um, so they built the house in 1874 and were able to move in in 1875. And the original like, price on the house was 21000 I think that was right about the construction price. What would you say it's worth now? Irreplaceable. Okay. Mm. Actually, so that's a really good CEO talk about an answer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because the CEO answer is that we have to look at that pretty much every year and revisit the uh, replacement cost from insurance purposes. Yeah. Mm. But when you have the home of an American president with over 10,000 artifacts, um, you know, you can't just go out and, you know, buy XYZ replacement. Sure. It's, it's, it's kind of the cumulative value. It's a phenomenal house. I mean, it's built out of 380,000 bricks. Wow, and Harrison again being very thorough, kept you know journals on you know, construction of the house. Um, you know, it's one of the things I admire about him, and it's it's something that um, you know I, I suppose all of us as students of leadership, and especially having these examples of presidential leadership, you're kind of curious what they do when people aren't watching. So hmm. Harrison had one of his contractors um, skip out on a subcontractor and not pay them. Um, so Harrison uh, was not obligated to pay the sub- subcontractor, but insisted upon paying the subcontractor for wow. what was owed, even though he had to double pay the, yeah. the contractor and the subcontractor for the same amount of work. And this was also around the same time he got one of his nicknames, Kid Gloves. Oh, yeah. Correct? So, and it was, he was defending somebody, I, I don't, my notes aren't great on it, uh, but he essentially had white gloves on. I've, I've heard a couple Defense of different stories and, about this. It's and, like an OJ situation. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, so the, the story, the story as I understand it is that, you know, it wasn't uncommon to be wearing gloves at the time, you know, but Harrison, um, while uninjured during the Civil War, had um, apparently gotten some bad infections on his hands. And so he was like more sensitive to like care of his hands. And so he would wear these you know, kid gloves. Oh, okay. And it was seen as kind of a disparaging thing, though, to say somebody was mm. wearing kid gloves because, you know, that's a, like a very fine grade of leather. Um, so it was meant as kind of a disparaging dismissal of Harrison to call him kid Like gloves. it was effeminate? Kid kid being like a baby goat? Baby goat. Okay. Yeah, this right. is a source of leather. Ah. So that's interesting. What I had from what I remember from the book was 
he was defending somebody in court and the prosecution said he was wearing gloves and he proved that the guy wasn't wearing gloves and so he saved the guy from paying the five hundred dollar fine. Oh, that's a real <laughs> so, Johnny Cochran kind of story yeah, that's, there. That's wow. what, yeah. So, well, if, if you got that from Charles Calhoun, it must be true. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I sure did. He right from the horse's mouth. Every <laughs> time I hear the word Calhoun, I just get scared. Oh man! Let's, there we go. There's yeah. the. Dun, dun, dun. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the fun things um, working at a presidential organization and getting to work in a larger history community is you get to eat, end up meeting a lot of these people that are writing history. Hmm. Um, so I've had plenty of opportunities to talk to Charles Calhoun. You know, I want clarification on something about Benjamin Harrison or greater insight. You know, drop him a note and say, hey, you know, Dr. Calhoun, is this what you understand this to be? Or is there a better source for this or whatever else it might be? And he's a tremendous gentleman and a great historian. That's awesome. So I hope that you do that from Benjamin Harrison's desk inside the house. Just <laughs> like, sincerely, from the desk of Benjamin Harrison, the man that you're writing a book about. Mm-hmm. No, never mind. Um, <laughs> we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Blaine, you look different. Did you get a haircut? Oh, I did. Thanks for asking. Oh, it looks nice. People have been noticing more often since I've started going to Chop Chop Barbershop. Say that one more time. Uh, people have noticed... More often since I've been going to Chop Chop Barbershop. Chop Chop. Yeah. It's this super cool, very clean spot over by 16th and College area. Oh, yeah. 16th and Yandis, if you will. Okay, I will here uh, in Indy. Yeah, super cool building, old school style barbershop. Anthony always fades me up well. He leads this diverse team of three other barbers. All three of my kids get their haircuts there. Even my wife gets her haircut. Oh, they there. do ladies' cuts yeah, too. From, you know, fades to braids and everything in between. I love that. And if I wanted more info, where could I go? I would check out, personally, chopchopbarbers.com. Okay, chopchopbarbers.com. From fades to braids to kitty cuts to the coolest barbershop there is. I don't want to look bad, so I'm going to go to Chop Chop Barbershop. Yeah. Yeah. Doop, doop. Yeah. And we're back from 1881 to 1887. Harrison served as a U.S. senator from the Hoosier State, Indiana. In the Senate, he supported many of the issues that he later championed as president, like pensions for Civil War vets, statehood for Dakota, which was then considered one territory and thus one state, high protective tariffs, limited civil service reform, a modernized navy, which we'll get into a little bit down the line, and conservation of wilderness lands. However, he did break with mainstream Republicans when he opposed the Chinese Exclusion Act Act of 1882, which ended all immigration from China. Charlie, anything you want to share with us and our listeners about Harrison's time in the Senate? You know, I I think it's worth coming back around to Harrison and trying to get legislation that would have protected the Grand Canyon twice. Hmm. And what what he was able to do about that later as president. Because again, you you try to understand these stories of, of what motivated presidents and you know how their legacies came to be if they were willing, um, if they had agency in their own administrations. Um, and I think for Harrison, you can see the intentionality in, in his presidency with a lot of the priorities that he pushed forward. So the way that that groundwork is kind of laid, even as senator, is interesting. So you're saying while senator, he twice tried to get protection for the Grand Canyon? And twice failed. What were they going to do to it? Well, fill it so in. it was proactively. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah not not, not fill in Grand Canyon Act. No, <laughs> no. so for, for Benjamin Harrison, just recognizing an opportunity to protect natural resources hmm. from inappropriate use. 
Okay. Who would he have heard about the Grand Canyon from? All the way out in Indiana in eighteen what in the eighteen eighties? Like so who would he, have told him? He, he ended up being one of the earlier travel travelers out west okay. in terms of gaining more perspective on what was at risk of being lost. Mm. Also wanted to find mastodons. <laughs> Speaking of mastodons, I hear that's an inside joke. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of mastodons, we've got a great uh, shirt that we're calling Jefferson on a mastodon. Although someone on social media said that's a Wally Mammoth, not yeah. a mastodon. Oh, sorry, sorry, nerd. Yeah, sorry, nerd. <laughs> uh, we'll uh, you just go to our social and you can find out how you can get yourself a Jefferson on a mastodon shirt. Well, in 1888, uh, he was nominated as the party's presidential candidate on the eighth ballot by a count of 544 to 108 votes. Levi P. Morton of New York was chosen as his running mate. In the election of 1888, Harrison lost the popular vote by 90,000 votes, but won in the Electoral College by a margin of 233 to 168, giving him the presidency. He was sworn into office on Monday, March 4th, 1889, and his speech was half as long as that of his grandfather, William Henry Harrison, whose speech remains to date, the longest inaugural address of a U.S. president. Remember he was talking about, like, Roman generals oh, yeah. and things like that? Yeah. Uh, he cried the day that he left Indianapolis for Washington, D.C., and I, I get that. I understand. It's a you beautiful know, it's, state. It's, interesting. it's hard to leave. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, and, and you, you read some of his speeches, and he really had a profound affection. He was a Hoosier by choice. Mm-hmm. Like, no question, he was a Hoosier by choice. And um, he said, I love this city. Mm. And he, he says something kind of curious that the first time I read it, I didn't quite understand. He said something to the effect that he hoped that if he lived, that he would be able to return to Indianapolis and to live in Indiana. It's like, well, that's kind of a curious like politician thing to say. Yeah. And as I reflected upon it, you realize the mortality rate of presidents in that era, you know, from Lincoln to McKinley, was fairly high. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the prospect, I mean, and Harrison actually Harrison month. actually tried. Harrison was testified in the Garfield assassination trial because Ooh. who's it? Is it Gato? Gato? Gato. Gato. Yeah, we do. You haven't bonus. heard our bonus episode. <laughs> oh, well, so, you're not a tier two patron. <laughs> so Gato apparently struck up conversation with Benjamin Harrison on a number of occasions. Oh, wow. And so Harrison had to testify to state of mind of Gateau yeah. wow. and said that he seemed in conversation like he was sane. Because he was the one that would just hang out outside the White House and try to corner James Blaine to get him to give him a job. Yeah, I mean, he would have cost anyone that Gosh. he could find. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's crazy. That's, so, a, that's a unique but, connection. But so, you know, talking about if he was able to return to Indianapolis, he, he meant it literally. You know, as a president, yeah. that was a very high risk in that era. That something might happen to you. Something adverse. Harrison acted quite independently in selecting his cabinet, much to the Republican boss's dismay. He began by delaying the presumed nomination of James Blaine as Secretary of State so as to preclude Blaine's involvement in the formation of the administration, as had occurred in Garfield's term. Harrison's selections shared particular alliances, such as their service in the Civil War, Indiana's citizenship, and membership in the Presbyterian Church. Nevertheless, Harrison had alienated some important Republican operatives from New York to Pennsylvania to Iowa with these choices and prematurely compromised his political power and future. Did you talk about his inauguration? I haven't. Okay. Just that he was sworn in in March 4th by Chief Justice Melville Fuller, which we didn't talk about before, but I'm glad you brought it up so I could just use the word Melville in <laughs> the conversation. Why? Share about his uh, inauguration. Well, no, for Melville always said that swearing somebody in the presidency was his white whale. Um, oh, the Gaia. Classic, Gaia. Classic, Gaia. Classic Gaia. Gaia. Uh, 
torrential downpour on the day of his inauguration, and he wore an undershirt to stay dry, trying to outlive his grandfather. Stave off his grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh no, it's happening again. <laughs> well, and actually, you know, to uh, Grover Cleveland's credit, there's a fin- fantastic photo of that inauguration where you've got Cleveland holding the umbrella over Benjamin Harrison's head oh, wow. while he's taking the oath of office. Oh, that's so. Unique. So, you know, there are things that could be said against Cleveland, but you have to give him credit for that. So it was like the few years ago when the Marine did that for President Obama. That was like super headlines where he was yeah. holding the umbrella. You remember was, that? Yeah, it wasn't yeah. the inauguration, obviously. From, but yeah. Clearly that Marine was a big garbage. I mean, that's to, where we get the term. The, the courtesy that that yeah. demonstrates. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's where we get the term pulling a Cleveland. That's right. <laughs> which we just coined. Which we just coined. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so any other notes? With his yeah. cabinet, he like went out of his way to make sure that he personally vetted everybody in his cabinet, or all of his appointees, right? Because he was trying to avoid the grant scandals. You know, yeah. it's, it's interesting when you think about this and what we demand of our public officials and what we want to see in um, like national political life. And how unrealistic it can be, because I think that it it really was an enormous taxing affair on Benjamin Harrison to live up to those expectations. And he really did try to vet as many of the appointees as he made. And it consumed an enormous amount of his time and alienated a lot of people that otherwise would have been naturally inclined to support his Mm. policies and his efforts. And so on one hand, you know, you, you, you have this kind of patronage system that everyone is railing against and, you know, Harrison sought to push back against with civil service reform, but it essentially undermined so much of his work and the prospects of his second administration because he actually carried through with it, mm-hmm. you know, versus yeah. just the lip service. Right. He actually followed through on it. And again, it alienated a lot of the, the party, the loyal um, um, kind of machine. Hmm. Um, because they weren't awarded patronage the way that they were used to. And what about his vice president, oh, Russ? Yeah. Oh, I nice. I hope to it. that Russ is ready. I'm all set. And I hope that you're ready, wherever <laughs> you are, for Russ's very Ben Stein-esque delivery of Benjamin Harrison's vice president. Here we go. Thank you, Ryan. You're welcome. His vice president was Levi P. Morton. That's Levi Parsons Morton. Oh. Mm-hmm. Born in Shoreham, Vermont. Oh, I just realized. You'll see. <laughs> you'll A lot see. of nice leaves up there yeah. in Vermont. His parents were actually. That's actually why they named him Levi. Oh, yeah. Levi. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't normally mention parents, but his parents were Daniel and Lucretia, which is a name that oh, seems to come up yeah. a lot. Yeah, where was the Lucretia in the other uh, episode? Who was Crete. that? Uh, Crete. Garfield. Garfield. Yeah, Garfield. Yeah. yeah. Wow, good recall. Uh, he was actually named after his uncle, who was a missionary and was supposed to be the first American ever to visit Israel. You don't say. Yeah. Okay. I mean, how would, okay. Purported to be purported. Sure. Oh, yeah. I imagine bad. he swam. Or it's boat. been said. <laughs> it's been said. It's been said in what I read. Did yeah. you say you think he swam? Yeah. <laughs> you look confused on how he got there. Well, no, I was confused as to how they vetted he was the first. Because like somebody could have done it and just not told anybody. His passport. That's true, but yeah. Yeah. He was the he was first the... one to be to tell the newspaper. Yeah, exactly. Okay. He was the first one to brag about it. The yeah. Tel Aviv Times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just uh, went, guys, I just went to the Holy Land, and let me tell you. 
Tell us more about Levi Parsons Morton. I will. He was a businessman first. So he made his fortune in dry goods, became a banker further down the line. So he went into the vice presidency with quite a fortune, if you will. And when the Civil War happened, he had quite an issue because he couldn't get cotton because he was very much anti-slavery and... When this happened, he did not want to, you know, side with the South. So he basically put a halt on his dry goods at that time. Okay. He went into... Wet goods? No. Oh. Yeah, yeah. He, he didn't like, go into wet goods. Done with the dry just, goods. Going into the wet goods. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think he <laughs> left... about going into He, he tried molasses. to keep cotton out of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Moving forward, he, after being a businessman and a banker of sorts, he had political ambitions. Problem was he really didn't have a political background at that point. So in New York, he wanted to become, I think it was senator, and he was basically shot down because he didn't have the political clout at that time. Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall. So uh, Roscoe again. Conklin. Oh, yeah, yeah. Conklin. Conklin. Classic. Uh, classic. Um, Conklin. Yeah. So <laughs> what he did to kind of build that I guess build that resume. He became a uh, political fundraiser oh. for Rutherford B. Hayes, okay. so on and so forth. A lot yeah. of wine and cheese dinners. Yeah, he was known for his parties. He was known for putting on big events. He was a schmoozer. He was. To well, it was clear. more his wife, but yeah. To be clear, this is not the Salt Morton, right? No, Morton no, no, no. Salt, no. Okay. no, no, no. Was he related to Oliver I don't know. Morton, Governor Morton here in Indiana? No. I don't know, but that definitely perked my... Charlie is yeah, definitely shaking My understanding is that he, there's no relation. Okay. okay. That would have been really yeah. cool, though. Yeah. I, I will say, I know not nearly enough about Morton. Yeah. Well, but, watch but, out. Russ but is your guy. we have, at some point, because of your, your analysis here, oh, we'll have to make sure that you get to see the enormous campaign poster for Morton that's in the house itself. I mean, it's, it's again, one of the cool things about having such great depth of collection there's this fantastic, enormous glitter poster. Oh, glitter, glitter, glitter. glitter. Yeah, you just went. You don't think 19th century and glitter. The devil's but, dust. But it's it's. You <laughs> ever accidentally opened the letter yeah. filled with glitter? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's glitter. But it's this fantastic glitter campaign poster for Morton. I yeah. love that you're learning things from Russ right now. <laughs> this is. I'm, I'm gonna fact check it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Please. This is very problematic, <laughs> to say the least. He read one book. Yeah, one book. <laughs> Uh, All right. So it was actually his second wife, Anna, who was kind of the the hostess, the the purveyor of the parties. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah. Purveyor of the parties. Yeah. Yeah. So she's a real housewife of New York. Vermont. Vermont. I mean, and Washington, as we'll find out very soon. So he was also friends with, as he was in New York and a businessman, He's going to be friends with Roscoe Conklin. Ugh. Daniel Sickles? Was he friends with Daniel Sickles? I imagine. Oh, right? So, well, as you might remember from the Chester Arthur episode. Ah, uh, yes, the walrus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When he was looking for a vice, when Garfield was looking for a vice president, Levi Morton was actually the first choice. And Levi Morton went to Roscoe Conklin to ask his opinion on whether he should take the appointment. And he said no. Right. So he listened to Roscoe Conklin and didn't do it. Chester A. Arthur asked him the same question. He also said no, but he defied him and took it anyway and became president. So that was a, you know. So we could have had a Levi Morton presidency. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But Roscoe Conklin. Yeah. 
And then he built up his steakhouse uh, empire, right? Yeah, the Morton Steakhouse. <laughs> got it. Okay. All kinds of Mortons. I'm okay. finding out. That was, that was when he got. That's when he got into wet goods. <laughs> that was for Blaine. He was a real Bernays sauce man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're just a bunch of idiots. So except Charlie. Charlie's very smart. Yeah. <laughs> so he did. And uh, judgment on that. <laughs> Thank you. He did end up fundraising for Garfield as well. Okay. Despite you know. And he was promised that he would become head of the treasury, you know, because I don't know if he was promised by Garfield or if he was promised by Conklin, Mm -hmm. but he did not end up being the head of the treasury because he was a Conklin, you know, and they were fighting against that at the time. He ended up being the minister to France. The ambassador to France. The oui. Which, side note, is what Charles Guiteau, Garfield's assassin, wanted from yeah. Garfield. Ooh, nice. So he's the reason. Yeah. yeah. He's also the reason we have the Statue of Liberty. <sighs> Unpack yeah. that, my I'm friend. I'm sorry. Yeah. Levi Morton is? Levi Morton is. Okay. Oh, man. So this he, as the minister of France, he met with... Whoever designed the Statue of Liberty, whose name I've written down. Charles <laughs> Les Miserables. Nope. <laughs> Bartoldi? 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 Yeah. Bartoldi? Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll go they with that. They kind of came up with the idea together as far as creating the Statue of Liberty in pieces and then having it, mm-hmm. you know, moved to America. Lady Liberty. Lady Liberty. Wow. Yeah. The reason that it kept moving forward and it didn't like die at the idea phase is because of Levi Morton. I mean, he was beloved in France. I think there was funding provided as well, but really he kind of moved it forward. Well, that's Charlie. interesting. It makes a connection that I'd never read before. Ellis Island opened during, oh, man, this is during great, Benjamin Russ. Harrison's administration. Yeah. Oh, so I wonder if there's some some connection. There. Oh, so yeah. that, your that name merits additional research. So yeah. that's that's I'm going to make a stretch here, but it's kind of true. <laughs> if your name has changed. Since you your family moved here, mm-hmm. you have Benjamin Harrison and Levi Morton to thank. And yeah. Russ, I think. And me. And Russ, yeah. I feel like, I feel like I need a glitter campaign poster or something. Because that, like that was like the big thing with Ellis Island, right? They yeah. were like, don't know that name. Your name's now Smith. How do you spell it? Slivka. What was yeah. yours? Slivovitz. Slivovitz. Yeah. Because Not anymore. Now Slivka. Brandy. I guess yeah. so. <laughs> yeah, it's a plum brandy in the, uh, not yeah. the Ukraine, but in, uh, where's that? Um, help me out. Poland. Poland. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you very yeah. much. You're Polish. Yeah, that's right. I am Polish. Okay. I mean, he actually drove the first rivet into the foot of the Statue of wow, Liberty. Wow. Like, that's it was his cool. deal. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Okay. That's great. Um, can you see her feet? Can you see her feet? Yeah, like, how did he? You can't see her feet? Okay. That's I think a big so. Rivet. She's got, she's got Birkenstocks on, remember? Oh, that's so right. Yeah, she's, got yeah, yeah. she's like going to Lilith Fair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> nice. So he was brought on as the <laughs> vice president because Benjamin Harrison was from Indiana and they needed the New York oh, sure. kind of right. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, as well. He won based on New York and Indiana, right? Those were his well, I mean, two it's, key it's states. A lot of that political dynamics of late 19th, early 20th century of Indiana, New York as being the swing states. Yeah, because we Gosh, we talked about this on a pre- with Garfield, maybe, or maybe it was Pierce that because there was some potential corruption with Indiana going to Pierce, I believe. And Indiana is what used to be what we now consider Ohio as one of the big swing states that can Mm. turn an election. Okay. Yep. I got all kinds of stuff. Uh, Bring it. Okay, let's bring it. So, (laughs) So 
He was elected to the vice presidency and because Benjamin Harrison's wife, Caroline, was ill much of the time in and out, his wife, Levi's wife, Anna, became kind of the first hostess. So she would host a lot of the parties for the White House, like Florid Calhoun. Oh, Florida yeah. Calhoun yep. was kind of yeah. the same situation. And she was used to some of that fundraising. Because she was a Oh, yeah. No, yeah. She, she put on parties. She was known for her parties. I mean, her, her daughter said that there would be parties where 2,000 people would be in and out of the rooms, you know, Dang. throughout the night. So there was Gotta quite get rid a few. of that doers somehow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Someday that, we're going to drink leftover it. cheese yeah. from Andrew Jackson, too. Yeah. yeah. It's still there. It smells so bad. What I just found out not too long ago, like while we're recording yeah, you this. you got a text about this. I did. Well, kind of. While he was vice president, he was still funding different projects. And one of the projects he was funding was the Shoreham, Shoreham Hotel in Washington, D.C. Okay. He was born in Shoreham, Vermont. Shoreham, Vermont. Oh, okay. And it was during the time of Prohibition, but the Shoreham had a full bar and was definitely like a... Um, it was vilified by the... Prohibition Convention of 1891. Okay. Like it was uh, so like was a, a local, was that a local prohibition then? I'm not sure. They called it a dram shop. Does anyone know a what dram, dram shop is? A dram is, is a measurement of uh, okay. fluid. That must be like a colloquial term for shot. Shot. shot yeah, yeah. Or something like that. Uh, the Beatles stayed at the Omni Shoreham Hotel in D.C. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. Hopefully, well, this was long before their time, but so <laughs> the a very uh, young Paul McCartney. <laughs> Thank God you pointed that out. I, I mean, you got to be clear. Thanks, Russ. I had no idea that the Beatles weren't alive in 1890. If they were alive in 1891-92, some have said, <laughs> and they were staying at the Shoreham Hotel, they might be in trouble because half of it collapsed. The reason half of it collapsed was because when the builders were mixing mortar, they weren't mixing it in wheelbarrows. They were mixing it on the stairs, which I don't know what that hmm. doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. No, <laughs> I, I honestly have no idea. But what happened is the lie from the mortar had seeped into the building structure. Hmm. And then a year later, like half of it collapsed. No one was killed, but... Half of it collapsed, and it was said that prohibitionist groups were like cheering outside of it because they saw it as like a act of God or something ah. like that. Yeah, it was wild. Wow. Shoreham. Russ, I love you, <laughs> and I'm so grateful for the knowledge that you just dropped on Levi Parsons Morton, Benjamin Harrison's vice president. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Well, on November 2nd, 1889, <laughs> President Harrison signed the proclamations admitting North and South Dakota to the Union. Due to a rivalry which existed between the two states, Harrison ordered the papers to be shuffled and for the names to be hidden from him while signing so that there would be no argument over which he signed first. We don't actually know which one was signed first because it was never recorded. However, since North Dakota is before South Dakota alphabetically, its proclamation was printed first in the statutes at large. Thus, hmm. North Dakota has always been considered the 39th state. Oh, fun fact. Charlie, any insights on that? That Just like he said, I, I think he had some, um, he recognized the humor of the moment. Yeah. And <laughs> so what year are we in right now? We're in 1889. Okay. So well, this is 2021. No, I understand. 
<laughs> I just I didn't want to. I thought maybe we had jumped ahead a little bit because there's a thing in 1890 I wanted to bring up. That well, what do you want to What do you want to share? Well, you had. I was just going to say, ultimately, six states admitted to the union. Right. Yes. You know, under Harrison. The can you name them all? Any president? Oh my gosh, I can. Oh. I can write them all probably. If mm-hmm. I, if I do. <laughs> so well, North just and South two. Dakota. That's South, South, South Dakota. Dakota. North Dakota. Idaho. Yep. Um, let's see, Washington. Yes. Oregon. <laughs> no, no, not Oregon. Oregon was uh, 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 John Tyler. Rhymes with Montana. Montana for sure. <laughs> and uh, it's Colorado's trousers, Wyoming. Wyoming. There yes. you go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Eighteen ninety, wounded knee. Ah, yes. This is when Harrison slipped on a patch of ice outside the home here in Indianapolis. (laughs) Tore his meniscus. (laughs) You were incredibly quick at that, and I applaud you for that. I'm just glad it got you as well as it did. He had some relatively famous, like, context to Wounded Knee, right? Like, he knew... Let's talk about this, because Harrison, and not just Harrison, but the United States' relationship with the Native American tribes out west, the burgeoning west of the U.S., was somewhat a complicated issue. Charlie, please open this up. You know, it's it's really a fraught subject. You know, you look across American history, and I know that you've had conversations about 22 other presidents, and their relations with indigenous people mm-hmm. um, has been less than stellar. Yeah. And, you know, Harrison, I'll, I'll say it's a fraught subject. Yeah. That, that even looking through the histories that we've been able to find, um, it's not as conclusive as we'd like in understanding what drove the circumstances of Wounded Knee. Um, Harrison, you know, clearly um, called for the military to be sensitive in dealing with the Native peoples but was not successful in doing so. And in the aftermath of Wounded Knee, called for investigation of what actually had happened. Um, and, you know, you look at that congressional record, I think they ended up, the, the soldiers themselves were maybe awarded some congressional medals. So it's it's very murky, but the outcome is that we know that the indigenous peoples were not treated well. Yeah. And I'd say that's probably one of the darker spots on Harrison's legacy, Yeah, is trying to understand what drove that incident yeah. And Harrison's response. Well, and I think that's a, a good time to interject this because when you gave us the tour a few months ago, one of the things that really impressed me about how you run the house here and how you present the house here is you don't necessarily try to hide that there are, you know, negatives or shadows, whereas there, are, you know, maybe some other, uh, whether they're presidential homes or just museums in general, that kind of gloss over yeah. or ignore the bad and only focus on the good. And I think that that's important. And I think, and I want to applaud you for that. I think that it's an important thing to do to, to recognize like, yeah, there are things that weren't the most positive, but mm. here they are in all their ugliness because it's important to learn them. Well, and it's, I know it's something you've contended with as you're looking for presidential biographies. You have to be careful to watch out for the hagiographies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know that they're... they're Open that often, up. What's what's hagiography well, for someone the, who may have heard that? That idea of telling the history only through like the positives Yeah, and, and losing out on the negatives. And I mean, first of all, it's unrealistic. Sure. Because, you know, really to be a complex historical figure, there's going to be good and bad. And, you know, sometimes... It's the counterexamples that are as powerful as anything else in helping give perspective to the conversations we're having today. Mm. Um, you know, we've got a program called Future Presidents of America at the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site that delves specifically into presidential leadership for young adults 12 to 16. And, you know, as you can imagine, 45 different presidents, 45 different very, really very different leadership styles. Right. And some good, some bad, somewhere in between. But, yeah, it's, it's important to acknowledge the bad with the good. Yeah, we do. I mean, we to your point, we try really hard to 
pick biographies that aren't overtly positive or negative. And Calvin Coolidge was a good example because we looked at a book that was very highly reviewed on Calvin Coolidge, but it was essentially reviewed as like this person was specifically looking to try to improve the legacy of Calvin Mm. Coolidge. And we were like, well, we know if we read it, we're going to walk away. We're going to be influenced by that. And we we don't want to do that. You know, when you get to Coolidge, make sure you include the you lose story, which is a, is a great one. Okay. I'll have to make sure that's in our notes. I don't remember that. Do you just want to tell it now? No. (laughs) Well, so, (laughs) so there's this great story about Calvin Coolidge and, um, he was notoriously, um, silent. And you know, boring, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so he he was seated next to a like I don't know society lady oh, at a dinner. I do remember this. And she yep. chatted, chatted, chatted the whole evening and got like nary a word out of him. And she finally had enough, and she said, "I bet my friend that I could get more than two words out of you." And he looked at her and he said, "You lose." Nice. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. That is in my notes. So Way to go. As well, long as I mean, you stick it's, with it's, us it's long enough, you'll hear that story. It's broader perspective on the plight of the yeah. presidency, yeah. yeah, which is, you know, you lose no matter which way you go. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, during Harrison's administration, Congress appropriated the f- first $1 billion in annual spending. Because it's a billion-dollar country. Right? Is that what he said? Yeah. Is that what it, his... wasn't, it wasn't him. It was, I think, the one of the leaders in the Senate. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that had said it was criticized. Maybe it was Reed. I think it was maybe Reed. Okay. It was criticized for the size of the budget. And they said, well, you know, it's a billion dollar budget. It's, billion it's like, well, country. it's a billion, billion dollar country. Yeah. And the country is growing at this time, too. Well, and a couple of things I want to cover on foreign policy, too. Go ahead. Uh, so he negotiated with Germany over the island of Samoa and essentially split it in half. Correct. Hmm. He also there was a revolt in New Orleans against an Italian mob? No. So, okay. as, as I understand it, there were Italian citizens that were lynched. Okay. Um, in New Orleans? In New Orleans. 11 okay. of and them. And it was, it was a huge international incident. Okay. And so... Because they pulled them out of jail and, and lynched them, and right? Lynched them. Yeah. And, I mean, horrible incident, you know, no matter what the era. And lynchings had become more and more prevalent in the late mm. 19th century, whether against African Americans or others. As we talked and, about in previous episodes, because essentially the people yeah. knew, I know the judge, I know the sheriff, right. I can get away with whatever I want. Mm-hmm. So they started being a little bit more, a lot more brazen about these things. Well, so it's interesting with, with the lynching in, in New Orleans, um, the country of Italy demanded redress for right. it. Mm. And um, New Orleans wasn't going to do anything about it. And Louisiana wasn't going to do anything about it. And Harrison really realized he had to intercede. Yeah. And so ended up paying reparations to Italy for the death of those 11 Italian citizens. Mm-hmm. And um, it explains in part the creation of Columbus Day, which was meant to help huh. celebrate Italian contributions to oh. the creation of this country and the, its discovery. I did wow. not know that. I did so, not I mean, know that as either. controversial as Columbus Day is sure. today, you know, hearkening back to indigenous people and, sure. and, and the horrible treatment um, that you know, indigenous people faced at the hands of those early explorers. Yeah, at least Columbus Day initially was meant to celebrate something good and to acknowledge yeah. the contributions of other European And that had like immigrants. a diplomat standoff too, right? Where like Italy pulled their diplomat from the United States for a little while. I don't, and I don't remember the, the full details, but again, it was 
at least on the Harrison time side, yeah. you know, from the presidential leadership <laughs> side, it was meant to, as a recognition of the contributions of immigrants. That's interesting. really interesting. Yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. Okay. And that, that piece of the story gets lost out a little bit more, you know. And, and well, yeah, because now it's always it's Columbus Day or as Columbus, yeah, it is right. as Columbus yeah. Yeah. versus acknowledging the contributions of those immigrants. And then, like mm-hmm. similarly, right after that, there were some sailors in Chile that got into like a bar brawl. Yeah, this was well, not similarly. Really, I guess that's not very similar. But go ahead. You know, it's it's interesting with with Chile because um, Harrison recognized that it was something that the United States had to do if it didn't want abuse of its soldiers and sailors abroad. Mm-hmm. So at that time, I think you know when Harrison took office, we might have been eleventh, twelfth, maybe even thirteenth um, in terms of um, navy size of the navy right. internationally. So I think we were even behind Brazil. He was really influential in growing it. And so Harrison was was dead set on growing the Navy for two ocean Navy for national defense. Mm, right. And so it was very focused on that. And so the creation of the modern Navy, the yeah. first modern um, um, battleship um, was the USS Indiana, mm. the one um, But Harrison recognized that it was that we had to take a stand. And with the murder of a sailor in Chile um, by policemen. Well, so I think one died at first and then maybe a second died right. later of the injuries. Um, so we sought um, uh, reparations for that loss. And Chile initially just shrugged it off and said, Meh, no, yeah. we won't do anything about it. Meh. And so Harrison was willing to take the country to the brink of war right. against Chile wow. to ensure that our soldiers and sailors were, were recognized and protected. And so it was as much about putting the world on notice that this mm. country merited respect. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to see from this vantage point where, you know, we see ourselves as, you know, foremost in the world. And, you know, we've yeah. got you know, China, you know, kind of coming up on our heels in terms of, you know, the size of their economy and sure. in a military power. But in that era, the United States had to do a lot to command attention. Mm. Um, so for Harrison to insist upon um, recognition of that um, grievance um, was really important. And so they actually, paid us so, seventy-five thousand dollars, right? I don't remember the amount, but I, I know that you know if you ever tour our museum, you'll see a silver statue of the um, of the um, sailor who's murdered, hmm. um, Charles Riggins. Um, we have a silver statue of him in the museum itself, and the reason for that is that. Um, a newspaper on the East Coast took up a collection and thank you and like and thanks to President Harrison for helping, you know, honor Reagan's memory and defend the honor of our soldiers and sailors. And so it was a silver dime campaign. So huh. they just mm. mailed in silver dimes. The silver dimes were melted down. Wow. And wow. cast into two statues. Wow. So we have the statue of Charles Riggins. Right now in the library here at the Benjamin Harrison That's Presidential awesome. Site. That's and cool. we have the Book of Honor with everyone that donated to that cause. That's really cool. Recognition of Riggins. So, I mean, it's, again, really cool stories in the way they interweave into all of this. Do we know how many dimes it took? <laughs> so, I think I think it may actually say somewhere in there. Either we, I've, I've seen the information before or That's it's in the book. It's a lot. Maybe it's a newspaper article, but a lot. Someone's <laughs> got to go back and get a load of dimes. I have two things here. So one, I love the consistency of Harrison's servant leadership back when he was in the Civil War, bringing coffee to his sentries, and also then 
several years later going to bat, so to speak, for these killed sailors under his watch as commander-in-chief. I love that that integrity stayed consistent there over the years. Second, I had a light bulb go off over my head as you were sharing about BB-1, the Indiana, and Harrison's modernization of the U.S. Navy, where my story with Indiana personally started with my dad being on BB-64, the USS Wisconsin, uh, a recommissioned World War II-era battleship that would not have started had it not been for Benjamin Harrison. So his administration started that, that then led me to Indiana, which in a way led me here today to be talking about... To literally Fort Benjamin Harrison. To Fort Benjamin Harrison. Yeah, the reason why I'm in Indiana is because my dad served and and, and, uh, part of his story is on that battleship. Well, we, we did an exhibit a few years back called Six Degrees of Benjamin Harrison, just looking at all these kind of unexpected, unlikely stories. Did you, you was Kevin Bacon? <laughs> we acknowledge that Kevin Bacon. Uh, <laughs> Benjamin Harrison was an extra on Tremors. So actually, actually, I think we made six degrees of connection to Kevin Bacon because his wife is like within like four or five degrees of Benjamin Harrison. She's uh, perfect. maybe like whatever umpteenth number of cousins from Benjamin Harrison. We'll accept that. Yeah. So, so um, just as a fun fact that we discovered as we were kind of pulling this exhibit together, we realized that the USS Indiana was the inspiration for the uh, ship piece on your Monopoly set. So oh, next time you play yeah. Monopoly, That's the ship cool. piece apparently was modeled after the USS Indiana. Okay. BB-1. Really? On that note, we're going to take a really cool yeah. break and fact check you, Charlie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. Episode 23 of the Presidential Podcast. Hey, guys, it's Ryan. If you are in the market to refinance your mortgage and want an expert to walk you through that process, you need to schedule a call today with Austin Bowman at Caliber Home Loans. Austin's been a friend of mine for years and is one of Caliber's top performing loan consultants with over 14 years of experience and expertise. Austin's number one priority is honesty. He's going to listen to your unique needs and guide you through Caliber's superior processing, underwriting, and closing process. For a smooth, hassle-free process from application to closing on your new mortgage, email Austin Bowman today at austin.bowman, that's B-O-W-M-A-N, at caliberhomeloans.com. You can also find Austin's email in our show notes. Whatever you do, don't ask Austin about the time when he took me out for my first time golfing when we were six and we almost hit a goose with our cart. Guys, email austin.bowman at caliberhomeloans.com today. Hey guys, it's Ryan. If you need custom-made t-shirts for your team or organization, look no further than our good friends here in Indy, The Art Press. The Art Press is a local, eco-friendly small business that's been around for years here in Indy, designing and printing all the super comfortable shirts you may have seen through their parent company's store, Vardigan. We've worked with them on our awesome new shirts that feature Thomas Jefferson writing a fire-breathing mastodon, and our experience couldn't have gone better. If you need help creating a design or you have your artwork ready, Ready to print, Derek and the team at The Art Press can help you get your order set up online quickly and easily. Plus, they ship everywhere and offer excellent customer service. Get a quote on your order of shirts today at theartpress.com. That's theartpress.com. Welcome back. Season two is brought to you by Greek's Pizza. Russ? It's our taste. Mm, it's so good, too. <laughs> so, Towards the end of Benjamin Harrison's term, there was a cholera outbreak in New York. So people that were coming to Ellis Island, which he 
like started, correct? Opened, yeah. He opened Ellis Island. There were people that had cholera, so he mandated a 20-day quarantine to avoid a cholera epidemic. Well, that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I wanted to make that tie to that this is not new. This is not a new thing. There's, and, there's a great New York Times article on that. Oh, really? Yeah, more recent. So, yeah, so the, the government uh, making mandates to try to prevent a public oh. health epidemic is not a new thing. Did uh, moms make a stink about it on Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> You know someone was going to go there. So at one point, and we talked about this a little bit in the break, he tried to annex Hawaii. And so Hawaii, obviously, as we know, eventually became a state, but not until 1949. 49 through 51, somewhere somewhere around there. there. I only wanted to bring that up because at the time they were a monarchy. Were they like a protectorate? Yeah. And so their queen, Queen Lilu Kalani, uh, was protected by U.S. soldiers that became the 1st, the 32nd Infantry Regiment, which was the battalion that I served under at Fort Drum in the 10th Mountain. That's a cool connection. Have you ever been to Hawaii? I have not. It's on my list of places I want to run a marathon in. Oh, that's right, because you're you're very type A. You, when no. you when you have your mindset on something, you have a goal of running fifty marathons in fifty states yes. by the time you're fifty. And I want Hawaii to be number fifty. Ooh, that's cool. I like so that. I'm okay. putting it off. The Hawaiian alphabet only has thirteen letters in it. There are several <laughs> letters in the English alphabet that are not in the Hawaiian alphabet. Why? I don't know if Y's in there, but no. <laughs> um, they're like, look, it's super relaxing. We don't need all the letters. We there just... are five vowels, A, E, I, O, U, and eight consonants, H, K, L, M, N, P, W, and the apostrophe, which is somewhat of a yeah, glottal it's, it's thing. 14 apostrophes. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> a little fun fact that you did not know you were about to get. <laughs> okay. That's a cool connection. So cholera, Hawaii. Let's get him, uh, let's get him back to Indiana. What do we say? And Mamie. Yeah, so it's his bid for re-election in 1892. He's defeated by Grover Cleveland, 277 to 145 in the Electoral College, making it the only time to date that an incumbent president was defeated by a former president. The election of 1892 was the most decisive presidential election in 20 years at that point. It was also the first time no candidate campaigned in a presidential election. Neither Harrison nor Cleveland actively campaigned, relying on surrogates instead. And Harrison didn't campaign because his wife died, correct? So his wife was suffering from tuberculosis. And so while Harrison was willing to accept the nomination for the presidency, he realized that he was not going to be able to campaign for himself. Mm. Um, And his wife died then, I think it was October then of 1892. And so he returned from the funeral here in Indianapolis to Washington and shortly thereafter lost re-election. So is she... Buried at Crown Hill. So she's at Crown Hill okay. along with Benjamin Harrison. Okay. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, and this is one of those areas that merits, like, deeper study. But, you know, looking at Charles Calhoun and his research, um, he suggests that a lot of the voter suppression that happened um, that was not able to be prevented by what was called the Force Act may have contributed to that loss because there was such rampant voter suppression happening in the South. In the South, yeah. In the Mm. South, that that certainly contributed to the margin, the significant Mm -hmm. margin for Cleveland's win at that time. Would that have been, where's that rank on largest margins of victory? I would assume Reagan, too, is probably the biggest. But but there's very clear evidence of substantial voter suppression. And in that era, certainly you would have had 
um, that that black vote um, right. more toward Republican than you would Democrat. Yeah, and I mean, there's a much deeper, interesting story there um, in trying to understand the politics of that era. And you know, you know, again, you know, no episode could ever capture everything. But you sure, know, sure, looking at Benjamin Harrison and appointing Frederick Douglass to um, ambassador from Haiti and looking at Harrison and his outspoken advocacy for African-American voting rights yes. almost certainly compromised his ability to secure votes, at least from the um, white voters in the South. And with his so, legislation that he tried to pass to ensure federal funding of education, especially of African-Americans in the South, trying to prevent voter suppression, and especially when you look at things like lynchings, he mm-hmm. actually had federal um, anti-lynching legislation that mm, yeah. failed um, that he so put forward. When did the parties flip? You know, that's a what really hard question to answer. And I, th- I think that when you look at the policies, you uh-huh. know, look at Benjamin Harrison's own legacy. So he was advocating strongly for African-American voting rights, civil rights. Environmentalism. Um, so oh, I you see know, he called for and signed the Forest Reserve Act, creating the National Forest System and also creating the Second, Third, and Fourth National Parks. Um, he called for and signed the Sherman Antitrust Act. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there are, there are a lot of legacy areas that could be you know, associated either with Republicans or with Democrats. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it, it just seem, it tends to mix from administration to administration until all of a sudden you see something unrecognizable. Right. Right? Yeah. So I don't, I don't know that there's any defining moment when things flip, but you can certainly see that evolution over time. And it's frankly one of the things that's really fascinating to me is that there's such a hybrid of priorities between like our current political parties with that Harrison legacy Mm. and what he was seeking to advance. Mm. And I I think a lot of it, a lot of it could be characterized by this, this fascinating story of the relationship of Benjamin Harrison and Theodore Roosevelt. Mm. And stop me if you're familiar with the story. No, Blaine's a TR guy. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting because Theodore Roosevelt, um, actually Benjamin Harrison hired two future presidents into his administration. Um, so Theodore Roosevelt and Taft. And so with Theodore Roosevelt, he was, accounts go, nearly unmanageable in civil service reform and did a lot that actively worked against Benjamin Harrison, at least you know in terms of the political machine. Mm-hmm. So to Harrison's credit, even though you had Theodore Roosevelt pursuing civil service reform and trying to pursue cases against individuals that Roosevelt felt like were abusing that system, Harrison refused to prevent Roosevelt from pursuing any of those cases, even mm-hmm. when it was against close um, connections to Benjamin Harrison himself. So mm-hmm. it's a credit to Harrison and a credit, a credit to Roosevelt. But in all of this, you know, you have Roosevelt kind of in his typical way insulting everyone left and right, mm-hmm. right? And so <laughs> clacking his teeth. Yeah. So I mean, if you if you watch um, Ken Burns' uh, series on the Roosevelt. There's a pretty nasty uh, statement by Roosevelt about Benjamin Harrison being this psalm singing old Indianapolis politician. Hmm. But what's interesting is to look at kind of the arc of that relationship that Harrison had with Theodore Roosevelt. So you, you kind of fast forward a little bit and you look at post presidency, Benjamin Harrison um, introducing Theodore Roosevelt at a national conference in New York. So by that time, mm-hmm. Roosevelt had been elected as governor of New York. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so Harrison was able to needle Roosevelt the way that only a former boss could needle a former employee. So he gives this great introduction for, for Roosevelt. And he said, well, you know, before, before today's you know, programs and everything, 
um, I was talking to Theodore Roosevelt and um, Roosevelt asked me my opinion on a subject matter and I, I shared my opinion and Roosevelt said, well, that was the very thing that I was going to do anyway. And Harrison <laughs> said, I'm glad to have arrived to the conclusion to which he had already come. <laughs> right. <laughs> so again, for anyone that knew Roosevelt, I'm sure it was hilarious. Yeah. 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 But, but Harrison went on and he said, I want you to understand. He said, I want you to understand that there, I never really saw any differences between myself and Roosevelt. Hmm. Except that Roosevelt wanted to right all the wrongs of the world between sunrise and sunset. And I th thought it took a little longer so as not to fracture things too much. And I think that that's, that's mm -hmm. a, a brilliant encapsulation of those two presidencies. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. you look at what Harrison's priorities were. And you look at the way that, in many ways, I think Theodore Roosevelt carried on that legacy after McKinley's assassination. Sure. Um, you know, if you, if you look at the assessments of the time, I don't know that Theodore Roosevelt would have ever been elected initially just on his own merits, however much they may have been deserved, just because he was so controversial. Mm -hmm. But you, you look at that legacy and the way that Theodore Roosevelt carried on many of those same legacy items um, from you know, advocacy for African-American voting rights mm -hmm. um, to... Um, Obviously, I, environmentalism. I, yeah. Environmentalism. And of course, sure. Roosevelt gets a lot of the credit now for the national park system. Yeah, sure. certainly merited in some ways, but it doesn't harken back to what Harrison you know, kind of laid that groundwork. Oh. So it's just interesting, again, so as a story. In what you're saying is it should be Benjamin Harrison on Mount Rushmore mm. and not Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> you heard it straight from Charlie. You know what? I'll tell you what. The, the funny thing is that Theodore Roosevelt would have wanted to be on Mount Rushmore. <laughs> oh, he definitely would have Benjamin wanted Harrison to. would not have wanted to. Yeah. And I, in many ways, I think it's, it's one of the things that works against Benjamin Harrison is that he never cared for the recognition that many others did. Maybe it's a classic New York Indiana dichotomy. The the original Knicks versus Pacers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Now you're talking my yeah. language there. Clearly, the marketers lost a, a moment there when they could have made it Harrison Roosevelt <laughs> rivalry. So that's what the, the mid nineties needed. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh man, that would. Yeah. Be great. So in this case, uh, for our sports fans out there, Teddy Roosevelt is John Starks. Ooh, and okay. Ben that Harrison helps. is that helps. Reggie Miller. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. So let's go legacy, little known facts. Ryan, you? Well, we got to let's get him back to Indy. Okay. And then we'll get into legacy. So he leaves office. Uh, he's making national appearances and speeches in support of McKinley's candidacy for president. He also delivered a series of lectures on constitutional law at Stanford. And he. So, quick, quick aside on that. Yeah, oh. please. So, so Han Stanford at the time had just been created. So Leland Stanford recognized an opportunity. He had just started what? As I understand, it was equivalent of like a community college in yeah, California. Okay. And so um, he recognized the opportunity when Harrison lost the reelection and invited him, said, would you come and lecture at my new college on constitutional law? Hmm. And Harrison loved the Constitution, you know, was always one to do it by the books. Um, and so did, gave this series of lectures at Stanford and really helped elevate it to national attention. So there's a theophany here. Oh, and oh. by the way, we use the term theophany. It's a theological term, but it's when... Some president shows up in another president's story before that president. Do you know this story? Go for it. I know. So, yeah, oh, this is great. I know president where you're Harrison going. Harrison went to a Stanford baseball game, and Herbert Hoover was a student at Stanford at the time. A he was taker. he was the Stanford class money person. What's the word? The treasurer. Looking? Treasurer. Yeah. He was the class treasurer. He found out that President Harrison had not paid for his ticket, <laughs> and as a student. 
walked up to President Harrison and asked him for the $8 for the ticket to the game. So a slight modification. Okay. Yep, as, go ahead. As I understand it, um, at the time, um, the ticket was, you basically just paid in advance. Yeah. And it wasn't apparent that there was ticket taking or not. Okay. So once it was called to Harrison's attention, there was a, a charge for the ticket. Harrison ended up paying for it at Hoover's request, not wanting to get away with something. So... So it wasn't that he was seeking to get away with not paying a ticket, right. but it's it's to Hoover's credit that he called out a president. I got that from Hoover's book, not Harrison's. Correct. So okay. obviously that was probably going to sway it in a specific way. <laughs> yeah. But it was basically saying like he was so on top of the finances of the school that he was brazen enough to go ask the sitting president for $8. Hey, you with the beard. Yeah. Iceberg. <laughs> Where's the cash? Yeah. <laughs> But down but the he cracker was, yeah, track. Uh, Hoover was in Stanford's very first class, which is crazy with where he came from. Yeah. Uh, so Kind of cool. Uh, Harrison also served as chief counsel for Venezuela in its boundary dispute with British Guiana, which I'm sure you've all heard about. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1896, oh, well, he's 62, and he remarries to Mary Scott Lord Dimmick, the widowed 37-year-old niece and former secretary of his deceased wife. Harrison's two adult children, Russell, who was 41 at the time, and Mary, or Mamie, who was 38, disapproved of the marriage and did not attend the wedding. Benjamin and Mary had one child together, Elizabeth, who lived to 1955. And that was probably the closest he came to scandal, right? Because there was a rumor that he had a relationship with her before. As, as I understand it, there was no relationship before. Okay. Um, but clearly scandalized his children. Right. That sure. Their relation, but no relation to him by blood, um, ended up resulting in a marriage and an additional child. So one of the few post-presidential children on mm. record. Yeah. Um, right up there. Who was the one? Uh, Ruth was Cleveland. Uh, Tyler had, uh, oh, 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 I see. A what thousand saying. children. Yeah, yeah. Tyler had like 72 <laughs> children. So actually, you've I, met, I got you've to met. meet one of his grandsons. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's interesting because you look at that, the family legacies and, you know, those Harrison family descendants, we've been able to continue to remain in touch with with many of them and um, I think it's a great credit to that extended family Um, but Elizabeth his daughter by that second marriage um, was a really remarkable person in her own right so she Mm. ended up passing the bar in both Indiana and New York wow she had her own business giving financial advice to women she was on a national economic council so pretty smart family yeah all around yeah Tyler's another family uh, that you probably shouldn't tell about our podcast that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeesh, yeesh. Not the most uh, gleaming episode, yeah. especially towards the end. Yikes. Uh, well, he develops what was then thought to be influenza, then referred to as grip in grip? February. Is it grip or grip? Right. It's G-R-I-P-P-E, Gripe. correct? I'll defer to you on pronunciation. Yeah. Grippe. Grippe. Like Grippe. the chips. In February 1901, he was treated with steam vapor inhalation and oxygen, but his condition worsened. His last words were, quote, are the doctors here? Doctor, my lungs. Not to be confused with Doctor My Eyes. Doctor My Lungs. By Jackson Brown, who was not present when Benjamin Harrison died. Yeah, being right outside of his home, I feel like it was in poor taste. I'm sorry. It's okay. It'd be totally different if we were in his bedroom where he actually died. Ryan's big thing is last words. So almost he goes to great lengths to try to find people. And he get you there was a couple episodes you couldn't find the last words and you were very upset about it. Yeah, and there were some where I actually impersonated the last words. Yep, that's true. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, he died in this beautiful presidential site, which we hope 
hope you all visit when you come through Indianapolis on March 13th, 1901 at the age of 67. He is interred at Indianapolis's Crown Hill Cemetery next to the remains of his first wife, Caroline. After her death in 1948, Mary Harrison, his second wife, was buried beside him. The poet James Whitcomb Riley, another famous Hoosier, in his funeral eulogy for Harrison depicted the dead president as a man both fearless and just. His epitaph reads, Statesman, yet friend to truth, of soul sincere, in action faithful, and in honor clear. So I think the thing that I've been looking most forward to is the legacy question posed to Charlie. Yeah. And Ryan, you always ask the question. Charlie, would you please complete this sentence as, as well and as much as you want? Benjamin Harrison is the reason the United States of America... Oh, well, actually, I can give a really good response to that. So you have to understand that for Benjamin Harrison, so much of what he did from the outset in terms of public service was a deep sense of duty and obligation to this country. And thinking about the fact that he kind of he saw those exemplars in his own family history of being dedicated to service, even at deep personal cost. And so Harrison, when he came to the presidency as centennial president, so 100 years after George Washington was elected, Mm. um, saw it very much from that vantage point that he recognized that he had this enormous obligation to country. And so he used that opportunity to call the country to its like higher sense of purpose and duty. So two things that he did as centennial president that I think speak to our own self-image as a country today. One, he called for the Pledge of Allegiance to be used in schools. Hmm. And huh. two, he called for the American flag to be flown in front of schools and public buildings. Oh, interesting. And okay. so when you, when you think about that and you know how much that's come to define you know, every school experience. Sure. You yeah. Know, you say the Pledge of Allegiance every day. Yeah. And when you, whether you walk into school or out of a school, you're going to see the American flag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you go to other countries and you realize how uncommon that is. It is yeah. And so, so for Harrison, for Benjamin Harrison, as, as not just a president, not just as a lawyer, not just as a statesman, but as a veteran, mm. I think saw the centrality of that. I mean, he went through some of the very worst days of the American Civil War yeah. and mm-hmm. saw what it did, mm-hmm. um, truly decimating his friends and colleagues and fellow soldiers and seeing not just the emotional toll, but the physical toll that that took on them and their families and their lives. Mm. And the significant toll it had on him, I think, as a, as a soldier himself, um, inspired a lot of the work that he did as president. You know, certainly the Social Security system, um, I've heard historians, some, some have said, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that that harkens back to the pensions that Harrison was able to get passed mm. um, in mm. protection of Civil War veterans. Yeah, it was and one so of the things while, we didn't while cover. that became... Yeah. A controversial issue in the late 19th, early 20th century with mm. that system being abused. It came from a place of being able as a country to honor the legacy of the soldiers that fought for the Union cause to protect the country as a whole. Mm. And just again, that deep sense of obligation that Benjamin Harrison felt. He said, an American citizen could not be a good citizen who did not have a hope in his heart. And I think so much of that encapsulates mm. What, what Harrison himself felt and that deep, deep, deep affinity he felt to the American flag and what it represented. A loyalty not to, to individual public officials, rulers, whatever you might call it, 
but a loyalty to institutions and justice through law. Mm. And I think that's something that every generation has to be reminded of, is that we're not loyal to our party. We're not loyal to these politicians who come and go. But this idea of justice through law and recognizing that preeminent among all things is the institution. And so that's, that's what we have to do. And I think every generation has to be reminded of is that justice through law and our loyalty to the institution, to the constitution and what it is meant to represent. Mm. Man, that's a good word. Yeah. We all just raised our hands in victory yeah. as you were saying that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Charlie, that's great. I mean, I think it, a few episodes ago we talked about Hannibal Hanlon. Yeah. Oh, and, from Maine. Yeah. And, yeah. And his, I mean, disdain for was, folks that put party over country. And yeah. there I was got several, very excited. But yeah. yeah. Whose vice president was he? Lincoln's first, right? Was he Lincoln's first? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he Lincoln's was Lincoln's first. first. Things would be different. If Hannibal Hamlin were in charge. <laughs> we're going to dive into one of our favorite, and many of you have shared with us. Well, I'd like to hear favorite. Like, like Russ's sorry? answer to the oh, question yeah, as well. Right, I mean, sorry, that sorry, was sorry. super well put, so do it worse. Oh, inevitably. <laughs> Go ahead, Russ. <laughs> From what I heard, the Grand Canyon would have been filled in without <laughs> Benjamin Harrison. With so poorly, <laughs> poorly mixed concrete. <laughs> Blaine, what about you? Um, man, I have a lot of thoughts. I think... Read the sentence from the beginning so I can try to... Benjamin finish. Harrison is the reason the United States of America... Cares about Indiana. Hmm. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I think... I mean, he's our one shining star as president. Obviously, we try to claim Lincoln. Uh, we kind of claim uh, his grandfather. Yeah. Um, but I think that his love of Indianapolis is the thing yeah. that really, really draws me to him. Yeah. Like, that I've learned a lot today mm-hmm. from from talking with you, Charlie, and and learning about his his character. And mm-hmm. I'm a huge character person. I read these books through the lens of character, not through the lens of, of policy mm-hmm. or party. You know, we talked about it with with Thomas Jefferson. There were some things that we had learned over the course of that episode and reading the book that made us uncomfortable because we always put Thomas Jefferson on a pedestal. You gave me more insight into his character that I was really impressed with, and I mm-hmm. and I felt the same about his grandfather as well. I told these guys after reading the book about William Henry Harrison, I learned so much about leadership mm. from him more than I learned about obviously his presidency. Sure, <laughs> um, yeah. four weeks there's only so much. You yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, I really did make the note because I love this city so much, and and I done as much as i can to promote it when he cried when he left indianapolis to go to the white house like mm. i felt that like i yeah. I understood it yeah um because it just, i mean i why wouldn't you love it here yeah why would you want to leave yeah <laughs> come on out sometime guys. yeah let's hang out <laughs> so uh for me it's the i don't know why the reason of you know the united states uh but for me it's why i'm in indiana he is the reason why yeah i mean fort mm-hmm. ben is what drew our family from rhode island to Indiana, which I've called home since 1992 and never want to leave, you know? So there is this really neat connection. And even as we record, like within a stone's throw of his home and presidential site, it's just, it's surreal for us as a team to be doing this episode here on site. This is super cool. Let's go on a little known facts. Some of our favorite and your favorite elements. We're going to, we're going to speed through these. Okay. Yeah. Covered a few already. Here we go. Last civil war general to serve as president. First president to have electricity installed in the White House. He and his wife would not touch the light switches for fear of electrocution and would often go to sleep with the lights on. <laughs> Wait, Charlie, that's not true, right? Is that true? Not true. Okay, not true. please okay. dispel the myth. <laughs> yeah. so, so quickly, um, Ike Hoover wrote a book 
remembering 40 years of presidents. He okay. was the electrician for the White or for the Harrisons that installed electricity in the White House. So he, he went on to become like White House steward and did other things. Okay. But he started off as the electrician for the, the Harrisons. Well, so it's interesting because the book itself says something to the effect of the family would not turn on and off the white light switches because they were afraid of being shocked. Okay. Brand new technology. Yeah, right. Yeah, right? right. It's yeah. like you wouldn't allow Tesla's autopilot to take you to Cincinnati. Yeah, you, of course you wouldn't, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. so, who wants to go to Cincinnati? But somehow this this evolved into <laughs> Benjamin Harrison <laughs> yeah. actually. So, somehow this that. evolved into <laughs> Benjamin Harrison was afraid to turn on and off lights. Sure. Switches. He tur- he installed electricity in his own house when he returned to Indianapolis. All right. right. So that's so, a myth. that's a myth. And the HOA was like, why are the lights on all the time? Dang it. <laughs> Those Harrisons. They were on next door just complaining about it constantly. <laughs> uh, there's a story of him chasing a goat named Old Whiskers. Uh, Very true. Hilarious. Here's a great we, plug for you, Charlie. Yeah, we've got the book, Old Whiskers Escapes. Tell us, about the book. Tell us about the book and how we can get it. All right. You just go to Amazon. You'll you'll pick up Old Whiskers Escapes for your pre-K through second grader. Okay. It's, it's a fantastic book. Great illustrations. And uh, yeah, pick it up. It's, it's Fun. fantastic. Yeah. He loved to chase goats. Oh, so the, the, the quick version is this, that, that Benjamin Harrison, his grandson, who was called um, Baby McKee, okay. um, lived in the White House. And Baby McKee had his very own goat and his very own goat cart and would ride it along the White House grounds. So Harrison would get some relief from political life by watching this <laughs> innocuous behavior in the afternoon. Sure. Who wouldn't want to watch yeah. a kid riding around behind a goat? So <laughs> something something spooks Old Whiskers one day. Oh. And Old Whisker takes off with the goat cart and grandchild in tow onto Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House. And whether you're president of the United States, you have to chase down your grandchild. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And so Benjamin Harrison, who was rotund at the time, ah, yes. I, I guess the, the press were gleeful. <laughs> To see a sitting president chasing their grandchild down Pennsylvania so Avenue. His tails flowing in the and, wind. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. They're, they're great contemporary illustrations of this. And Harrison caught them just before they fell into the, a great excavation. Oh. As the newspaper said. Again, gleeful newspaper reports. It's sure. In the book. We've yeah. got it The star was all over it. Yeah. 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 So it's well worth picking up. Oh, that's fun. In our gift shop or elsewhere. <laughs> he also tried to escape Washington as often as possible, frequently going on hunting trips in secret. One trip made the national press when he shot a farmer's pig by mistake. Whoopsies. So maybe not the best to aim, or at least uh, he didn't know what was a good pig to shoot or a bad pig yeah. to shoot. More states were admitted during Harrison's presidency than any other. You had named those six, so good job on that, Charlie. Uh, he was the earliest president whose voice is known to be preserved. There's a 36-second uh, recording that was oh, yeah. or- originally made on a wax phonograph cylinder in 1889 by Gianni Bettini. And you can hear that in Michigan State's library archive? Yep. Michigan wow. State University. Oh, why Michigan just, State? Just well, Google it. Just Google it. Yeah. You can just Google it. it. Yeah. Why are you giving the Spartans a shout-out? Well, because that's where the thing is. I'm, Apparently, the original wax canister recording is... Currently missing. Oh, oh. you know who we need? Nick Cage. Nicholas Cage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Cage will find it. Nick Cage. Uh, Harrison was also the first president to give a prehistoric Indian ruin, Casa Grande in Arizona, federal protection. Okay. That's kind of cool. He was a member of the 13 Club, a club formed in 1882 by Captain William Fowler, who had fought in 13 Civil War battles. Russ, I saw you just sit up here. Is this like Bohemian Grove? D- kind that, of. That's a crazy story. That's worth looking up to. Okay. Do you know what? the fear of the number 13 is called yeah because it was judas at the last supper right well, that's yeah. one of the reasons why yeah triskaidekaphobia is yeah. the fear of 13 we've actually fear talked about this before yeah because it's fear, fear of triskets, triskets. right yeah. uh 
Uh, how dare you speak with disdain against those beautiful woven yeah. crackers. <laughs> Members would meet on the 13th of the month at the 13 past the hour and sit 13 at a table. And they want, they would they would willingly break glass. They would walk in with open umbrellas. They underneath would enter, ladders. Underneath ladders, <laughs> legitimately. Uh, four other presidents would become honorary members of the 13 Club. So, Arthur, Cleveland, McKinley, and Roosevelt. So basically they were set out to dispel the superstition. So this is the original Bohemian Grove. Yeah. Okay. And maybe. I don't know. Maybe the Bohemian Grove was... <laughs> oh, Charlie, we're going to talk about Bohemian Grove. Don't worry. Have you heard about the 13 Club at all? Oh, yeah. Okay, all right. You don't know about Bohemian Grove? Wait. I don't know about Oh, boy. Wait. Are you a member of the 13 Club and you just can't tell us? <laughs> <laughs> in 1908 the people of indy here uh, in indiana erected the benjamin harrison memorial statue the statue sits in university park in downtown indy where harrison often gave speeches to delegations traveling through the creator charles niehaus had eight statues in the national statuary hall in the u.s capitol in dc which is a record for a sculptor so that's only like a couple blocks from my office. I can almost see that statue from my window. But you told us a fantastic story about that, and I was going to bring it up in Little Known Facts if you didn't. Go ahead. There was a different statue originally, correct? And it's there's so, a replica inside the house. So I think when, when, when sculptors make those maquettes in the first place, obviously they're responding to an audience. Mm-hmm. And so they're different you know, postures that they're in. And we're not certain of this. This is one of those things that you just kind of figure out by conjecture. We assume that the original um, maquette was rejected because it had his belly showing fully. Ah. And again, mm. a little rotund. Yeah. And in the final version, he has his jacket closed and is standing kind of face forward. But I have to say, I much prefer the original. And if you go to our website, presidentbenjaminharrison.org, you can see many items from our collection, those 3D items. Um, they're under the collections tab, including that statue of Benjamin Harrison. And if you even have access to a 3D printer, you can 3D print that statue for yourself at no cost. Huzzah. No paywalls, Ooh. no limitations. And that statue is currently on, is it Michigan or New York? On right, New York Street. New right York Street. The Federal Building University. Yeah. Right in right front of the, the War Memorial, correct? Yes. Yeah. And by the way, Indianapolis, the monumental city, Second most monuments of any city in the country behind Washington, D.C. Wow. Wow. How many of those are Benjamin Harrison related? Well, we've got a special exhibit right now that that speaks to two of those because it was Benjamin Harrison that called for the everyday soldier and sailor to be recognized Mm. with the the War Memorial of the Soldiers and Sailors Monument on the circle. And then in turn, the way that the city and the country honored Harrison as a citizen soldier. Nice. With a monument to him. I like that. That was actually that inside of the War Memorial is a giant auditorium. Yes. And that's where I received my commission okay. uh, as an officer in the Indiana National Guard. Nice. Well, yeah. and that's something we hope to be able to do more. It was something that we had started pre-pandemic. And we hope to be able to do post-pandemic commissioning ceremonies. It's, so it was really cool. Listeners that, that are interested, yeah. don't hesitate to reach out and let us know. It was super cool. And the my biggest takeaway was the there's a giant painting of a man uh, behind the stage. Uh, and he's got a cape on. And so I looked up uh, AR670-1. And it's actually still allowed in <sighs> formal dress uniform to wear a cape wow. as an officer. That's cool. Uh, so you need a cape with a big, a big Z on it yeah. or Zimmerman's. <laughs> yeah. Charles, any other fascinating little known facts that we didn't cover that, that come to your head right now? 
you know, there, there's lots more to be learned. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, certainly by me, and I, I consider myself a student of history, and there, there's there's still a lot to be learned. Well, that's so. we so appreciate your just your wisdom and your knowledge and your willingness to share it with us and our listeners today, Charlie. This is thank so you. much fun. Yeah, and thank you for listening to the Presequential Podcast, brought to you by Greeks Pizzeria. Thanks also to our other sponsors, Austin Bowman and Caliber Home Loans and Chop Shop Barbershop, as well as the Indie Art Press, makers of our world famous and renowned Mastodon. <laughs> t-shirt if you love this episode please subscribe follow us wherever you get your podcast leave a review that really really helps and connect with us on all the socials at presequential our next podcast is on 26th president william mckinley and it's going to be released wednesday december 8th 2021 before you listen to that podcast go back and listen to cleveland again yeah that's right you have to do that <laughs> twice <laughs> hey we hope you enjoyed listening to episode 23 the iceberg on benjamin harrison on the presequential podcast 